Welcome to Building a Better World, a show about entrepreneurs, executives, and leaders putting profits aside in the pursuit of something more meaningful. In today's episode, we are joined by Morgan Raphael, the founder and executive director of the Carolina Wildlife Conservation Center. CWCC is a wildlife rescue and sanctuary just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. As we'll learn from Morgan's story, they are one of the first conservation centers of this type in North Carolina, especially in Charlotte, North Carolina. They're on 105 acres of preserved wildlife land. They have 24-hour care staffed by state-licensed wildlife rehabilitators. They rehabilitate a wide variety of local wildlife from bats to beavers to foxes to possums to raccoons to squirrels, turtles, the list goes on. If you all are not following them on social media, make sure to check them out in the notes below because there is an endless supply of inspiring stories and amazing work that they're doing. And to get us started, we are going to go all the way back and hear Morgan's story right from the beginning of her growing up in Ohio. Oh, so interesting. Um, I always brought home animals. That was just what I did. Um, my mom still blames me for all of her cats. So, you know, cats just live forever. So um, growing up, I don't think I realized how green of a space I grew up in until I left. Um, but I actually really grew up in the forest, which was really such a good childhood for me playing outside all the time. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, everybody is like, Ohio, what do people do up there? But it's actually really pretty. <laughs> And I grew up, so I grew up in a forest and I remember saving, uh, there was a mother deer that had twin fawn right outside our window. We saved a barred owl, there was a raccoon. So I actually did have experience with wildlife from the start um, and just getting dirty and playing in the mud. I rode horses. So that was a really big connection to animals and kind of probably why I don't have a, much fear of animals because horses are big and they can be hard to work with. Um, so I did that from a really young age and animals were always everything to me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you have a favorite class? I'm envisioning science, biology, those being favorites of yours. Did, is that what you loved or were you the one that was sitting and staring out the window all the time in class? Um, yeah, I was voted the class clown in high school. So <laughs> caring about class, not so much, but I really liked the science that had the class pets in the room. In kindergarten, we had a little hamster that I remember um, so I always liked those places. My teacher in first grade brought her dog to school. So I always loved the animal classes. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, and did you have at this time, I guess we'll get into maybe, maybe high school, starting to think about what you wanted to do, where you wanted to go. Um, did you know that this would be something, it sounds like from the very beginning that this is, you, you didn't consider anything else. Were you considering other careers, something for lack of better words, more traditional, more of an office job, anything like that? Was that pressured upon you? No, know, I wasn't so much of a forward thinker in high school. I think I was um, more focused on finding out who I was as a person and navigating that life. Um, 
And so I didn't really think I went to college at Michigan State University for psychology. For the first year, I really wanted to work with humans. I went to Africa in eighth grade and uh, volunteered at a village for a while and worked with children there. So I really wanted to work with children in the beginning and people. Um, and that was my focus for a while. I think through high school, I was thinking about working with um, children, orphan children or something along that line. So I did go to school for psychology in the beginning in college. Um, but I quickly realized that was not the place for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit more about that trip in eighth grade to Africa. What what were you doing there? How long were you there? Um, so I was in the Drakensberg Mountains with my family, my mother and my sisters, and my sister's friends who are South African. And we brought over suitcases of uh, clothes and shoes and literally came back with nothing. I gave away the shoes off my feet when I was there. Um, we built a vegetable tunnel and we're teaching the children and it was just a very eye-opening experience for seeing what the world lives like and these are some of the, i have journals from that time in eighth grade I, ha I can look back at them and i wrote about how happy these people were with nothing and that is what i think i've carried forever is that um this this search for happiness and it's not about materials and it's about true um, connection and being grateful and so that's some of the things that I learned in that village. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so also going in throughout, I guess we'll say middle school and high school as well. Were you engaged with nonprofits in your area? I know that's common that that people typically have to do some sort of volunteer service mm -hmm. throughout that time. Were you engaged doing anything that you were interested in or was there anything going on then? Um, I'd like to say yes, but to be honest, all my spare time was filled with riding my horses and competing. Yeah. So it was right after school every weekend I was riding and at the barn. So um, I wasn't too engaged with community service. I did like canned food drives and would just fill up my car with a bunch of food and things like that that the school was um, doing. But I was really focused in riding my horses all through high school. Of course. Well, and I don't blame you. That sounds, again, right up your alley, right up your alley. Well, and speaking of, of being right up your alley, tell me about that transition when you were I guess we'll find out if you stayed at Michigan State. Leaving psychology, what was your choice then? Was that difficult? It sounds like that you've been on a pretty big self-discovery journey. I'm sure that that was a big step. How was, how was leaving that psychology place and, and going and figuring out what you eventually studied and wanted to do? Yeah, so interesting. So I did my first freshman year at, at Michigan State and I came back for my sophomore year and um, I just wasn't happy. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. And I'm kind of a person that really needs a strong mission and passion. Like I don't like to settle. And I truly believe that um, to take risks and that we're going to figure out our path if we take risks. So I ended up leaving in October of, of sophomore year, just packing up my car dropping out of all my classes. Um, and before I drove back home, I signed up for trips to go to Thailand and Africa. So I had a plan um, to leave school and travel. 
and figure out what I wanted to do. And those trips were around uh, working with animals. So that's kind of what led me on that journey. Um, I moved, um, I just left school <laughs> and traveled the world. That's amazing. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have to go into this. We'll start with Thailand. Okay. Tell me about what, what, what brought you there? What was your interest? And yeah, I'll, I'll just have, I'll have a million questions. Yeah. So I don't, I just like exotic travel. Um, I think it was, I was, I remember distinctly sitting on the couch at the apartment at Michigan state, just like, okay, if I'm going to leave school, I need a plan. And so just searching online, you can find trips where you're involved in animals, but also immersed in the culture, which both were important to me. And I wanted just a place completely off grid. So I chose, um, it's from, I think it's called GVI Global Something Volunteers. And it's a trip to Thailand. Um, actually, one of my volunteers now went on it as well a few years after me, which is interesting. Wow. But you basically go and you live in a village with one of the families and you don't have water, you don't have electricity, and you work with these rescue elephants that are uh, rescued from the logging, from the tourism, and they have all of this land and you have to hike to go be with them. Um, and so I just was very interested in kind of living in that off-grid situation. And it was uh, such an amazing experience, like such a pivotal moment for me in my journey. Was it, tell me about just living and getting around. What did you do for water? What did you do for, for personal hygiene? All of that. What what was the experience of living? Yeah. There? So first of all, we, we I flew into Chiang Mai. My luggage was lost. It was so dirty, I remember. <laughs> Didn't care, though. And took, like, <laughs> rode in the back of a truck uh, yeah. five hours into the mountains. Um, arrived there. And so for water, it was a bucket to shower. You had a bucket uh, that was very cold water and a ladle. And you showered yeah. like that. Um and so I just remember how cold it was, the water. <laughs> and then drinking water, I think we had purifiers of some sort. That wasn't really an issue. And then cooking, the family would cook for me. And the house was kind of up on these stilts. I had to hike up basically a mountain to get up there. Um, and the house was up on stilts itself. And there was like a bamboo flooring. And the family cooked on one side just over fire. And um, again, just such happy, kind, generous people. Um, the worst part about it were the spiders. So there were <laughs> giant, giant spiders. Um, so that was the most difficult part. But yeah, it was, it was just a beautiful place to be. I hope I can return one day. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about day-to-day -day activities that you were doing at the sanctuary. I'll say for lack of better words, were yeah. you, cause I, you weren't necessarily in veterinary vet tech. You weren't doing any of that stuff yet or what no, were you doing day to day there? I was doing the medical stuff. So, um, it was hiking to, to be around the elephants, doing medical checks on them. Um, it definitely what had like a more of a business model probably from their side in order to get funding to provide for the village and all of the social stuff so the elephants were a big part of it but not the primary focus and for me 
um, the village was more the important part of the journey than actually being with the elephants because the elephants each had caretakers. I think they're called matooks or something like that. Um, so they each had their own caretaker and they were very bonded with that caretaker. So um, we got to work with them and know them and they were really, really awesome people. And I'm pretty sure that they're still there with the elephants. What, this is like um, 11 years later, 10 years wow. later? Yeah. Huh, well, and, and how long were you there in Thailand? Um, I was there for a month. Okay. And then Amazing. I quickly, I came home, um, I did a horse show or two, I think, and then I left right away for Africa after that. Okay. And then where in Africa did you go? Um, I was in that trip, I was in South Africa and Botswana. Okay. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. Well, and so, again, was it? with i think you said it was gbi was it with the no, same nope, this entity was a, or what brought you over there this was a different this was african conservation experience mm -hmm. so a different organization a lot more hands-on with the animals so i lived at a um, my cousin and i who she's now on our team she does donor relations for us um she came with me and we lived at a rehabilitation center so we raised, uh, it was my first taste of, re of wildlife rehabilitation. And so we raised um, injured orphan, the same thing, animals, wild African animals, um, lived in the bush. Um, again, giant bugs everywhere, <laughs> getting up really long, sleepless nights, feeding babies, yeah. a lot of prepping of diets and formula, um, lots of sandwiches and lack of coffee for some reason is where I being so tired. Um, but we raised uh, orphan rhinos, so fed them their bottles, which were like two liter Coke bottles with like this big nipple on top. And you had to prep all that um, and go down there with your headlight on down to where they were, like through the bush, just hoping that like nothing was on the trail. Um, we raised, I raised a baby caracal. I raised a, a vervet monkey. What else? Some owls, um, cervals, uh, meerkats. Um, yeah, just lots of African wildlife. Amazing. Well, so out of, out of those, do you have a memorable experience with one animal? Uh, that we'll get into later as well of just being able to build connections with animals and, yeah. and your work. Do you have anything that sticks out from either of those trips of a really good connection with one of the animals you worked with? Um, a specific animal, the rhino, the baby rhino that, um, uh, if a rhino's orphan, there's usually a horrific story attached to that. So this yeah. rhino was found uh, laying in her dead mother's carcass and just smelled horrible of death and she came in so scared um it with her eyes wrapped and her ears wrapped because they want to decrease the sensories of them and her name was timby and it turns out that she just had a baby at the sanctuary she's still there oh my God. and she just had her own calf 
So that's really cool. So I actually have a tattoo of her on my arm. Um, and she just was always what I talked about, little baby Timby. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, she was very, very memorable. That's amazing. Well, and how long were you in Africa? Still a month or was that a longer trip? Um, total, I was there six months, about six months. Um, but I went in two different trips. So I went that year and then I went, I loved it so much. I went back the next year. That's amazing. Amazing. So looking back on it, how do, do you ever sit and wonder what would have happened if you didn't go on these two trips? or anything along those lines. I mean, your life would be in such a different, different place. It would. Um, well, I also met my husband in Thailand. So there's that factor of just life would be so different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that I'm very grateful that I trusted my intuition and that I needed to switch paths. I'm grateful that my my family was supportive of me doing that. Um, and I'm grateful it literally was like, I woke up as like, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this psychology degree. I don't want to be here. I need to go travel, search the internet. And I truly like feel like that came so, from so deep within because that was meant to be my course in life. And it really has all added up to where I am today. Was that scary? taking that jump and and leaving psychology behind or did you have blinders on you knew that you were heading in the right direction and you could feel that I cried the entire way home five hours driving from Michigan State back to Cincinnati I cried the entire way home um because I yeah was scared that was a big deal but um I knew deep down that I was pushed I was so strongly drawn to be doing this um so yeah, it was scary, but it was, I knew that's what I needed to do. Amazing. Amazing. So then you left Africa, you came back to the United States. What, what were your next steps? What did you do after that with this new, new passion? Um, I moved to New York city because that's where my boyfriend at the time was moving from Israel to work at the New York uh, consulate and the United Nations. So I moved there with him. Um, And it turns out that in New York, right about north of New York, they have one of the best veterinary technology or vet tech programs in the country. So it worked out that again, the path was um, drawn that so I went to New York and I went to school there and absolutely loved it. It was a smaller private college. So I really liked the intimate setting of it versus a giant school like Michigan State. And um, my education was everything at that point. And the path like I got, I worked um, at the Bronx Zoo Hospital, at the Staten Island Zoo, at the Leo Zoo. So I got a lot of experience being in New New York. There was a lot of opportunity. What program was it that you were enrolled in? And how long was that? It was a veterinary technology program and it was a bachelor of science degree. So four years, I came in with a few credits, but um, yeah, yeah, four years, bachelor of science. How was that transition leaving the the wonderful green of Ohio and, and living in New York? Was that a shock to you? How was that? Was that difficult? It was really hard. Yeah. New York is a concrete jungle. The people are, I learned so much about myself in that time. Um, 
I didn't love the city at all, but it was again meant to be in my path because I had so much great experience uh, and met amazing people, of course. And I live right next to Central Park, so I was able to walk my dogs. Of course, the the day that I get there to move there, I went and got a cat and then two dogs. So <laughs> it's like I need my animals in this city. Um, you need your barn. You need your barn. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what kept me going. And then, yeah, the experience, the Bronx Zoo, obviously one of the best in the country as well. Um, the, I did more hospital veterinary work there. And then the Staten Island Zoo, I did a lot of the zookeeping work and the husbandry. So it was the perfect merriment to learn what um, wildlife rehab would need from me. Yeah, yeah. And so at the Staten Island Zoo in the Bronx, you mentioned your, your two roles. Did you have one that you started to enjoy a little bit more than the other? Was it the full marriage of vet tech? And the other work at Staten Island or or what was your yeah. did you see a path opening up as to where you were going to go next? Um, I don't think I did clearly. So those are summer internships. So first I started Staten Island Zoo. Um, that taught me a lot about perseverance because it was a two and a half hour uh, <laughs> subway to ferry to bus one way. Yeah. Um, and I was offered a two day position. And then I was like, can you guys just like give me more work because I just love being here. I like, I'll be here five days a week. And they're like, yeah, definitely come five days a week. So I ended up working with the head keeper there um, who had been there so many years and he taught me so much. I really loved the intimate setting with the animals. I think they did such a great job. I loved cutting for the diets for some reason. Like <laughs> that was fun. Um, so that really gave me the love that I know I wanted to be very hands-on with the animals. Um, and then the Bronx Zoo taught me just so much medicine. Um, it, it was a harder setting because there was a lot of pressure. You were doing surgery on the last animal of its kind or the last breeding pair. Um, so there with a bunch of people watching, it was, it was a lot of pressure, but I had really, really great mentors there. Um, got to sit in and hear a lot of different um, diagnoses and go around the zoo and see how they're doing things. So that was also a great experience. Yeah. Well, and I would assume, and, and this might show how little I know about the zoo system and how zoos work, I would find that to be really interesting and, and getting to learn a little bit more about the, the back end of breeding pairs being moved to certain zoos, items like that. Did you find that interesting or completely overwhelming when you started to get involved, especially at the Bronx Zoo? Um, I think it was so new to it that I was like more overwhelmed by the pressure of it. They were also filming a TV show at the time. So I was actually there for yeah. a year. So they're filming a TV show on Animal Planet, Planet, I think it was, at the time. So there were a lot of cameras around, which was really difficult. <laughs> um, but I definitely, I was absorbing so much. I'm a big note taker. So I have a huge notebook full of just information. Um, I did a lot of lab work, so they did all their stuff in-house, watched necropsies. Um, so I think it was a little bit of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. Gotcha. And so what year would have that been that you graduated from the vet tech program there? Um, so it would have been, um, 20, roughly. 20, um, 
17, but I actually left to be like completely transparent. I actually left with a semester to go, um, one externship yeah. to go because that's kind of how I seem to roll in life. And um, yeah. Yeah. I felt extremely pulled to come to Charlotte and start a new journey here. I couldn't take New York anymore. Um, yeah. And when I interviewed for jobs in Charlotte, they were like, why didn't you finish school? I was like, have you been to New York? Like, can you imagine <laughs> living there as like an extreme um, nature loving empath? Like, yeah, it was really difficult. So I was like, okay, I'm going to um, leave without this degree and see where it takes me. I can always do my last semester and finish it up, but I, I, yeah. I didn't need to. There you go. Well, and so what brought you down down here to North Carolina and to the Charlotte area? Um, my my sister lived here, and there was an opportunity for my husband, and we just were like, let's just dive into it and see where this journey takes us. And it's worked for you many times before. It has. So so it worked out. It worked out again. So tell me, as soon as you got here, were your wheels already turning for obviously what we'll get into later? Or when did you start to realize we we need to open this thing and and start to hit the ground running? I think I'm gonna sound like a broken record and that <laughs> I um, woke up one of the first days we were here and I was like, I need to do wildlife rehab. And I just started searching on the internet for how I could get that done. Literally just woke up. I didn't even have it in my mind truly. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was on the animal path, but I didn't know there's not zoos in Charlotte that you can really do. There's maybe a nature center too, but nothing really fully what I wanted to do. I was like, okay, I'll interview for some vet tech jobs. That didn't seem to float my boat. So I just woke up. I was like, I should do wildlife rehab in Charlotte. And so I looked it up and again, it just kind of all aligned and quickly realized the intensity of it had some wonderful mentors and I quickly realized that we needed a center um, and and jump from there. And so what was, well, I guess I'll take a step back mm -hmm. and actually ask a question throughout this entire, entire process. That would be a hard decision to make and, and your confidence and courage to go into this and know that you need to start it, especially what, what I always hear in the nonprofit world is that people always are upset by the lack of business background. And so I'm interested in hearing of, did you sit down and think, I need to put together a business plan, I need to put together a marketing plan, or did you just go forward and figure out there's gonna be hiccups, there's gonna be problems no matter what, and just push forward? What were your thoughts? before you really got into this and, and to sit down and plan, obviously you said you had some good mentors. What were your thoughts when, when it was time to get this started and pick it up off the ground? That's a great question. Um, I just, I think that I had no doubt that Again, I just keep saying the same thing, and I'm sorry that I can't yeah. be more no, you know, no. educated about it and say that I had a business plan. I had the, all these ideas. I, I just needed to do it and figure it out along the way. And I believe in myself, and I believe in the work that we're doing so much that I knew that it would come together. Um, I 
would figure it out along the way and find amazing people along the way to help with it. And, and that's turned out what happened. And that's your superpower. Never let that change. Yeah, thank the, you. The continents, that's amazing. Amazing. So was it 2018 or 2019 when you started? So 2018 was when the center, uh, the land, we started construction on the land. For that, before that, I did a year of rehabbing in my house. So I had a room in my house where I was rehabbing possums, squirrels, bunnies. Um, and that's kind of what led me on to the center because it's like, we, this is not sustainable for people to be doing this out of their homes. We need more space. Um, so 2018, yes, pulled up to the property, knew it was the one, the first property to look at, right? Had criteria of not only did it need to have a place to rehab, but it needed to have the land with it as well and the location where people want to come and bring animals. So it just, again, all fell into place. First property just meant to be. Amazing. And so this is, this is where um, the Carolina Wildlife Conservation Center started. Yes. So I will let you lead the charge here and tell us just quickly who you are and what you do. Um, and then I know many more questions will pop up after, after you get into that. So tell us a little bit of who your customers is not the right word of the animals that you rehabilitate, the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just a little spiel on who you are and what you all do. Yeah. So we are a native wildlife rescue in the Charlotte area, but we actually take animals from across the state people. Um, so we call them good Samaritans. They call us with, uh, injured, orphaned, or sick wild animals, and we let them know how to proceed. Either they bring it to us, they need to leave it where it is if it's not truly orphaned, they need mom to come back, or um, we provide lists of places closer if they don't want to bring them to us. And we have my goal with opening this center, like I said, most people are rehabbing out their homes. My goal was to have a central location where we would have a vet on staff full medical capabilities uh, and able to rehab as a collaborative because great minds together can do way more than one single person. So we have 105 acres of land that is conservation land. Um, it is mostly wooded with ponds and streams um, where we release the majority of the animals. We are in Lincoln County in North Carolina, so kind of northwest uh, of Charlotte. Uh, which turned out when we got the property, it wasn't really well known. It's been booming over there in the development space. So it's really kind of becoming an island of green amidst a lot of uh, high density housing. Um, but we rehab or rescue about 2,000 animals a year, and that number is growing. We take about 6,000 calls a year for animals that need help. And it's, um, it's growing every single year, every single day. Gosh, the need for animal, for wildlife help is extraordinary in our area. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's amazing to me is that you grew so quickly. And it's so amazing that you did. How did you get, was it difficult in the very beginning to find the time to support, obviously, the veterinary costs of rehabilitating these animals? 
having these amazing people here to, to actually be doing all of this work, supporting 105 acres in those, in the, the first early one or two years, how was, how was that? What was your day to day in those days? In the first year, so 2000, April, 2019, I had spent since about September, 2018, kind of working on what you said, the business plan and stuff, but we had gotten the property and done construction. Um, and I was thinking about how do we get this done? And we started off with just two people. Um, Ruby Davis were, has been with me since the start, and she is just uh, so well-known in the area for her rehabilitation skills and just a brilliant woman, very, very in touch with the animals. It was just her and I the first year rehabbing almost. We, we rehabbed maybe 15 an 1,500 animals, um, and... That kind of shows like normally a new business, right? You'd give it a few years to get off the ground. We got off the ground right away because that showed how big of a need there was in the community. So it was her and I day in, day out. Like I would drive home, come back the next morning. We were nonstop her and I doing this. Um, and so it, it just grew really fast kind of organically because there was such a big need for it in the community. And um, we really filled a gap in the area that um, was needed with the Wildlife Rehab Center. As far as covering the cost, people generously donated to um, our center in order to take care of their animals. We quickly got on social media, which has been a great um, covering of costs and our veterinarian was not on staff at that time. We didn't have on-site capabilities in the beginning. So we were driving 45 minutes to get vet care. Um, and we've just really started off basic in terms of we knew what we needed and uh, we grew from there. But we've been very uh, lucky to have people that have supported us from the start. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what I think is so amazing is the, the community that has grown around that, I mean, you, you filled, you, you hit the nail right on the head. You filled such an important need, which is amazing to me that a, a wildlife conservation center didn't exist in the Charlotte area. Mm -hmm. um, when you moved here, was that extremely shocking to you? I mean, clearly very, based off of what you did, it was very shocking. Is that from other places that you've lived and grown up? Is that normal? Or is this, was, was that a unique situation that Charlotte didn't have a location yet? It's normal. Yeah, there's not a lot of, the rehab community is very small. Uh, I think it's might be because it's a, it's a low paying, or if not paying at all, volunteer position. There's a lot of um, compassion fatigue that goes on in it. Um, it's, it's a hard um, business to sustain, but I wasn't surprised that there wasn't a space, um, and I was happy to fill that gap. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we'll get into the work itself because, I mean, everything I know about you, this seems like a, a home run. I can't imagine you wanting to do anything else. Does it make the, the long days, the little sleep a lot easier to be working something that, that you are so passionate about? Does it make the, it makes it worth it? Oh, for sure. Of course. Um, there's a lot of argument that it's like you're not helping the species. We don't have 
we have enough gray squirrels. Why would you save the gray squirrels? And we're truly focused on the importance of an individual. All of these animals have feelings, emotions. They're all different. You can get five raccoons together and they all have different personalities. Um, so it does make the sleepless nights worth it. It's always worth it to be doing something. I have many times gotten out of bed to go pick up an animal out of the road because I just can't sleep at night knowing that they are out there in suffering. So this is, I believe, strongly in living a life of making a difference and following your passion. And um, sleep is my least priority when it comes to the health and well-being <laughs> of an animal. Amazing. Amazing. Well, and do you have a, a favorite, favorite injury is not the right word, a favorite operation or, or what's the word I'm looking for? A favorite process to undergo with an animal that comes in. Is there something that is extremely fulfilling to you? Maybe even a species of an animal that you really love working with the most? Um, yeah, both. I really, I think just the beautiful journey of seeing an animal come in that is so bad. People always ask, aren't you afraid of the adult raccoons? That Aren't you afraid? And like, truly I'm not because the way these animals just melt in your arms and they know that they need help. So you go from that they're, they're just, they know that they need help. I truly believe they know they're getting help. They're in the worst space. And to be able to see them and help them along their journey. And at the end, they do want to <laughs> fight you, right? Which is always great. Yeah. Like, we love that. <laughs> so that is my favorite part in like a whole. And that's kind of what we do. They're so small and then they grow big. And so that is the best part of the journey. As far as injuries, I... um think that getting like fly strike and maggots off of animals is I personally hate it. It's like very um, disgusting, but it's really important because you can't imagine how much that animal is suffering when they're getting eaten alive by maggots or going to with fly strike. So um, it's really, I really like doing that because there's like such satisfying and knowing that animal is no longer going to be suffering from that. Um, and then as far as species, like it changes every day. I don't, <laughs> they're all so different again versus personalities. Um, like we had two beavers that were awesome and we were really connected with, and then our two beavers now are a little more standoffish. So it depends, but I really love them all. Of course. Well, and do you have a specific story that you always tell of, of someone that you really connected with closely? I love how you all personify and bring to life the email I read last week of probably the people you were mentioning of Francis Betty yeah. or Beatty. Um, do you have a really amazing story of, of an animal specifically that had touched you um, or, or any good stories along those lines that you tell people? Ooh, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. Um you know, yeah. So the social media that you see, I um, primarily do the stories. And so I'm always thinking about how do I take this animal's story and make it impactful so that even if they didn't make it, they we can make a difference in possibly another animal's life. 
So I'm constantly thinking, I can't think of something that pops out of my mind particularly, but um, because I'm always thinking about these animals and sharing their stories and how can I, the personification isn't because they're friendly and they're cute in the center. We don't name them because they know their names. We name them because it uh, is a way for people to relate to them maybe not necessarily animal people or people who understand wildlife. So it brings them to life in a way that people can start to feel compassion and empathy for these animals. So that's why I tell the stories in the way that I do. We give them names that they never know. Um, We talk about (laughs) them like she was found in Francis Beatty Park. So that's where why she was named that. And she's a really cool story too, because adult beaver in the middle of a soccer field. And it just kind of shows like that these animals are living in our, our space, trying to survive, but really we're living in their world and we need to give them that space and that empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of empathy, being such an empathetic person, and I know it's the goal, but my question is, is it hard to let these animals go sometimes? Is it an emotional experience after you've spent weeks, even months rehabilitating them and it's time to, to let them out on, on your acreage? It is so exciting. They, like, I wouldn't say the word hard. Is it emotional? Like, have we cried as they've gone free? Yes, it's emotional, but because it just bursts our heart with so much joy. Because these animals have been on this long journey, like I said, they're coming in emaciated, just like on the brink of death, to be the point where we are confident that they're going to be successful in the wild is the best feeling. And when they know that that door is open, and they can run free, like the happiness that you can just so strongly feel in them is just... um, it's amazing. So it's not sadness. It's always happiness. It's always um, love and respect. And they're meant to be wild and free. And I'm so happy we're able to give that to them. Amazing. Well, and so the the last question I'm going to ask, and the big one is, you're clearly really, really smart. You're really driven. You are an excellent entrepreneur. Thank you. There are so many ways that you could have gone the traditional success route you could have stuck out psychology you could have built another company that wasn't a conservation center there are so many ways to to go down that rabbit hole for lack of better words so my my question is why why build a better world why work on something that is not just for you and and something that all of us can enjoy that clearly is making such a big impact why do you do it because they need us they, it's like almost gets me emotional. Um, they don't have a voice. I've always been one to fight for the underdogs. And while animals are the underdogs already, wildlife is the underdogs of the underdogs. There is a need. Um, there was a good business in there. Um, there, I believe a life of purpose is that's the, what I wanted to live. I could not do anything other than serving others. We're serving people by getting them help for these animals. We're serving the animals. We're serving the community. And I want to live a life of service to this planet. We're giving a voice 
to the earth, to the wildlife, to the trees. Um, so if I die tomorrow, I will be happy to know that I was able to, to provide for the 7,000 animals thus far and this organization will keep going for hopefully a hundred more years and save many thousand animals after this. So why do I do it is because they need us and we're, we're encroaching on their worlds and they're being victimized and the only people that can stop it and speak for them is me and Carolina Wildlife Conservation Center and all the people who are passionate about it and using your voice is powerful and I'll, I'll never stop doing that and uh, that's what I'll teach my daughter and we, we live lives of service and that's what we're put on this earth to do so. And that was Morgan Raphael with the Carolina Wildlife Conservation Center. If you want to support CWCC and Morgan, you can go to carolinaconservation.org and donate. You can also find all of their social media tagged in our show notes below. Any support that you can do always helps. Thank you for listening to Building a Better World. Please make sure to subscribe on whatever listening platform you are on, share with your friends and family, and we look forward to being with you in the next episode.